going into any negotiation as a parent who is trying to find a way of working that will let them keep working, it's so important to remember that what you're asking for is not just for you in your personal life, but you're asking for essentially everyone. And so when they say to you, you know, I'd have to do it for everyone. Well, the answer to that is like, that's probably what's needed to make progress here. And for us to stay competitive. Welcome to Problem Performers, a podcast about professionals who challenge the status quo at work. I'm Rebecca Weaver, and yes, I too have been labeled a problem performer at least once or twice in my career. But looking back, I know where it is a badge of honor. In fact, all the most interesting people I know have earned this label at some point. In reality, these are the people who challenge their workplaces to be better and do better. I think we should all aspire to be problem performers in our work lives, because the only way to make real change is by shaking things up. So let's get started. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm so glad you've joined us today for what is going to be a very special conversation that is near and dear to my heart. Today, we're talking about being a working parent and specifically a new mom. Um, My guest is a leading voice on gender, business, parenting, and now pandemic parenting, and a mom of two boys herself. She's a former executive editor of Glamour Magazine, author of the best-selling book, The Fifth Trimester, and founder of The Fifth Trimester Consulting, which advances parents' equity in the workplace. She is a complete badass, a great writer, an incredible spokesperson for working parents in all walks of life. So Lauren Smith Brody, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on, Rebecca. And like, that's great. Like we're done. That sounded perfect. And let's just- <laughs> We'll go out on I know. (laughs) Well, Lauren, you have written an amazing book, The Fifth Trimester. So can you talk? I mean, this title is awesome. Um, Can you talk about how you define that fifth trimester? Sure, sure. I actually coined the phrase the fifth trimester, which was um, I trademarked it. It was the very first step in this process for me. But um, when I was pregnant with my sons who are now 10 and 13, so it was a long time ago, um, I had 12 weeks of maternity leave. Some of it was paid. Some of it was not paid. I was returning to um, a fairly supportive environment. I worked, as you said, in publishing and largely with women, people who were in various stages of caregiving themselves. Um, and yet it was startlingly challenging for me. And there had been, you know, so many resources when I was pregnant, um, that were about the baby and there really wasn't much for the mother. And I just remember reading the happiest baby on the block, the Harvey Karp book. He's the guy who invented the snoo. And all through the book, he says, you know, Hey mama, you know, they all call you mama, like get to 12 weeks and your baby will wake up to the world and smile and start to get on a sleep schedule and just start to eat more regularly. The breastfeeding will get easier. And I thought 12 weeks sounds extremely familiar because that's exactly (laughs) when I'll be going back to work. And the irony of that really, really stayed with me as I returned to work. And I was um, fairly young for my position, um, but I was still, you know, I was 30 and having my first kid. Um, but I, I was, was 
kind of was able to approach things with a level of, um, of executive privilege. And also just, you know, um, I realized you, you have listeners now, but we're looking at each other's faces. I wear everything on my face, like everything I'm thinking you just see. And I know this about myself. So there was no faking it till I made it coming back to work. I knew that I had to be really open and honest about what was hard. And if I hadn't slept and what was that stain on my shirt and I did it and rather counterintuitively, it actually made me a better manager. Um, and I had a number of people say to me, I've never seen anybody be so kind of bold about being a new mom. And I kind of didn't know how it was going to work for me. And now I can see with your doing it, it's hard, but you can do it. And so like, I see a future that I didn't really know how I was going to do myself. And so that was a real aha moment for me, file it away, few more years of managing, have another baby. And then I start to think I really want to look beyond my own experience and codify this as a fifth trimester, not just the fourth that Harvey Karp had described, but something more that's really a time of great expansion and vulnerability. And ultimately I found a transition that could help me make sort of personal career progress, but also make some progress for my employer at the same time, in spite of its being like remarkably hard. Um, and so that's where it came from. I did the research for, left my job, did the research for the book. Um, that became sort of the skeleton, all of the, the interviewing and surveying I did of hundreds of other, of other mothers who defined their motherhood in all kinds of different ways and defined career and ambition in all kinds of different ways, hourly wage working moms and single moms and adoptive moms, moms who had used surrogacy to build their families, really strove to have as many different voices and experiences in there as possible. And I was able to connect the dots between what we had in common, what we had working against us, um, because so often with issues of any kind of equity or fairness or sort of cultural norms that don't actually sync with what's medically possible, um, it's very often on the people who are in the mess to fix it. And we don't all have the energy. So, but together we could share information and help make things better. So the book is out there doing its job in the world, has been out for almost five years now. And um, I'm so grateful to readers who read it internalize it, know they can keep going and then maybe even find extra energy to help other people. And then since then I have built uh, my main work now is mostly speaking and consulting and helping companies do a better job of retaining mothers and promoting women by supporting parents and caregivers. And over the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll talk about too, um, that has really, the definitions of all of those things um, have expanded. Um, and essentially we're all in our fifth trimesters now as we really have to negotiate with the highest stakes, which is, you know, of course our families to be able to keep our jobs and keep going. And, um, it's been, it's been a time of remarkable growth, you know, both for me, my family and for this business. And I love the work I do. That's awesome. There is so much to unpack in what you are talking about and, what you describe as the fifth trimester. I love the idea of just the structure of that. And then I think about my own experience. So my kids are now eight and five. Um, when I was pregnant with my first, um, I was in a fairly high power job. It required overnight travel every week. And my husband was in um, residency for post-medical school. Um, and he, so he's working about, <laughs> Same yeah. here. oh, yeah. amazing. So he was working about 90 hours a week. Um, and same thing when I got, so I had been working in HR and, you know, I'd helped other people take leave, but I think it just didn't really fully sink in for me 
how that was all going to work until I was getting ready to take my own leave. And all of a sudden, again, I'm working for a big company. And the first kind of massive aha was, wait, I, I'm not getting paid for the entire 12 weeks. And I work for a huge company that is very employee forward. Wait, what? Um, so that just even kind of maneuvering through that um, as a primary breadwinner for our family, trying to figure out the combination of uh, vacation time and what leave did I have? And I would get paid for about half of it, but I really needed to take the full 12 weeks. So how are we going to manage through that financially? And then even returning to the job um, was just absolutely brutal and something I was not prepared for. Um, and I remember so distinctly the other working moms in my life being such a lifeline for me. Um, I remember having a conversation in one of our, we were you know, gathered together. We had brought everyone together from our regional teams to headquarters. And I remember being up very late one night talking to this fellow working mom. She was in a, again, a high powered position and just talking to her about, tell me like the real, real story. Like, how do you actually do this? You know, how can you do all of this? And, you know, she just shared her experience. And um, again, it was just such a lifeline for me because um, the realities were so challenging. And again, just not anything that I expected. So interesting. You asked her how she does it. It occurs to me, I'm like writing this down, like this would be a good, a good post or a good, you know, article to write of maybe the real question is, what do you not do? Like, tell yes. me all those things. You don't ever see the things that people skip, right? But like, yep. what are you skipping right now to be able to do everything that you're doing? Yeah. Hang on, I got to jot that down before I forget. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's, you know, how are you managing through those things? Um, and, you know, there was a point in time for me where I felt like I couldn't, I wasn't able to give everything to my child. I was not able to give everything to my job. Um, I was definitely not able to give everything to my family relationships. And it was just... I am failing everywhere. I am totally failing everywhere. Now I recognize also that I was dealing with some postpartum depression as well. Um, but that's not always obvious at the time either. It's amazing. I mean, what you're saying is that, you know, you are, I'm sure, an incredibly capable person, you know, and you have the bandwidth and the support to have been able to do those things and, you know, with whatever combination of, you know, supports you have in your life to be able to do it. But you imagine, like, you know, if, one piece of that fell apart, like, which is, you know, you're, you're unusual. And that's part of what I try to teach. Um, you know, the, especially the higher level executives who I work with, who are trying to make things better for the people who are more junior and, you know, but full of potential and who they want to retain is that you can't assume that, you know, if, if you're at the top and you survived, there was something driving your success. Either you require less sleep than most human beings, or you have a partner who's home with your kids, or you had financial resources to be able to get the help you needed, or you're just hyper capable. Like you may just be like top 1% of people who can like get shit done well. And that's, you know, more power to you. However, that's not the case of everybody underneath you, which is why you right. have to bring those people into the conversations because we're all driven by, you know, 
implicit bias that we have based on our own lived experiences. So like more power to you for doing this work to have, you know, as many voices included in the work you do. And um, I'm sure as an HR professional, you know, you had to think of things from so many different perspectives, just in terms of like covering, you know, the companies, but legally too. Uh, It's really fascinating when you have a little distance from it. I was incredibly privileged in so many ways in my experience, and it was still unbelievably hard. Um, I mean, the other thing that I was really privileged to have was a boss who was just beyond supportive. Um, You know, he went out of his way to, so we had regional meetings on a monthly basis and he went out of his way to schedule those in my hometown Mm. so that I wouldn't have to travel at least one of those weeks out of the month. Um, and I could be closer to home. I mean, just things like that. Um, I just, I will never forget that. But the other thing I think about a lot is in my role in HR, you know, I had a project where I was developing a, Um, program for high potentials. So it was in supply chain. And we were looking at, you know, we had great representation of um, women and people of color at our lower levels of leadership, like entry level leadership. But then very quickly, it just dropped off dramatically. And our company was, of course, not the only one that deals with this, but we were looking at that and like, how can we, how can we provide, especially for women um, in this industry, because it's a very male supply chain, very male dominated. And so in the middle of all of this, you know, I talked to tons and tons and tons of our entry level women supervisors. And what I heard over and over again was, I don't see anybody who looks like me doing the job successfully. And especially for me as a mom, either currently a mom or someone who wants to have children at some point, I don't see anyone who is able to be successful in these higher levels of leadership who is also a parent uh, or a mom. Um, And that was really striking for me um, that there are no good examples, you know, we don't see someone being able to navigate all of this, someone being able to manage the logistics of it, even at our higher levels of leadership, those are very high paid jobs. Um, And so, but, but not being able to see anybody be successful um, was a huge deterrent. Mm -hmm. Some of it, I think is also that when, you know, some of the people who have made it to the top, just do not feel comfortable being transparent about you know, when they are doing things for their families, which is, it's such an easy fix, you know, to, well, may not be easy for them emotionally, but it's an easy, it's an easy suggestion to make that, you know, to help people know that, especially in their, if they're in leadership, when they are visible about the things that they're doing to support their family life, that that's doing their job well, because they're actually helping retain people. They're helping people see that there's a path forward for them. Um, And to think of it as work that you're doing. Um, That's something else I've started um, teaching in my corporate work is even like anything anyone does that is, um, uh, that is retention building. um, Even if it's like, cause women in particular are really, really good at some of the soft skill stuff that that gets sort of tossed aside as like, Oh, let's not talk about how nurturing we are. Cause that would be really sexist. Well, like, guess what? Nurturing retains people and retain retaining people promotes great talent, you know, like yields, yields a diverse workforce and, you know, and is really, really good for, for profitability. So let's actually, you know, pay people for these things. So I'm, you know, I'm encouraging my clients to figure out ways for their ERG leaders, employee resource 
group leaders to be paid for the work they do. Cause so often they take it on in like, you know, the quote unquote extra time in their day. And when you have people doing that work for it, it really does, it is profitable work that they're contributing, but also like it's stealing time away either from their own personal lives or from their paid work that they do. And, you know, potentially their own regular work can suffer because of it. So let's just incorporate it. Let's pay it at even time and a half, you know, to encourage everyone to do it. Not just those of us who are conditioned to nurture, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Some of the other things that I think about and that I work with executives on is this idea um, of being a great example. And so this is something that both men and women can do, um, especially in positions of leadership. Um, But I will say to them, first and foremost, don't be a work martyr. Mm -hmm. Don't, even if you say, oh yes, absolutely. Take your time. And yet they never see you do that. Um, you know, that becomes the unwritten rule within your organization, right? Um, And so if you're going to take time, first of all, you should take time to go to your child's uh, play or just to go pick them up from school or whatever it's going to be. But be loud about that. When you are doing that, be explicit to your team about why you are leaving work uh, because it then sets the example and actually gives them the permission to do it themselves. Absolutely. And I think the other side of the coin is, I don't want to say be quiet about when you're working in off hours, because I actually think that, you know, real progress is having agency to work however you best work to get your defined job done. So there's plenty of people, myself included. I do like great work between the hours of, you know, 9 p.m. and midnight. I'm pretty in the morning. Right. But that's just the way I'm biologically built. And so, you know, when I was managing people very often, I would be like wrapping up my workday at midnight. And I wish I had access to my old email account because I would love to see, I'm pretty sure I sent a lot of emails late night that sent a message to the people working for and around me. That was, you know, some of it was probably performative on my part, if I'm being honest, you know, like you look at me, I'm working so hard. And some of it was really just to clear decks so I could go to bed at night and feel like I had gotten through my list. But like, what message did that send to them? Nothing good. So like schedule send is like an amazing, amazing tool. Work whenever you need to work, but don't send those emails outside of traditional work hours unless somebody's hair is on fire, you know? Right. And by the way, our definition of hair on fire. Um, totally you know, true. <laughs> not where it needs to be, right? Yeah. Um, I've started I, I've started seeing people include on their emails, I'm going to add this to my own, um, you know, something to the effect of, you know, I work, my um, work and personal life, you know, requires flexibility. So please respond when it works for your schedule. Um, you know, something to that effect, I think is so powerful. And it's something that I've coached, Uh, managers should do for many, many years, be very explicit. It's a conversation I have at the very beginning of any working relationship that I have with anyone. I say, because it's true, my work life, my personal life requires me to have very odd hours sometimes. Um, So please know that if you happen to receive a message from me in the middle of the night or at an off hour, I am assuming that you will just respond when it works for you. I'm not expecting an immediate response. If anything needs an immediate response, I will call you. Yeah. I mean, the telephone is an amazing invention and it (laughs) really is. It's such a good litmus test of like, how much 
does this vacation need to be interrupted? And, and it's amazing how much people don't want to call you. Right, right. It's a really good test. It is a great test. Exactly, exactly. Well, I want to get back to talking about, you know, this fifth trimester. Um, I've talked to so, so many working moms um, who have gone through. So first of all, we'll talk about pandemic parenting in a moment, but especially for those who have had children during the pandemic, what are you hearing from them and how the fifth trimester is now manifesting itself in this largely remote working scenario? Oh, so, so, so many elements to it. So first of all, um, I know of a number of people who are not revealing their pregnancies until much later than they Mm -hmm. would have. And then they're finding that because it's not visible, right? Like if you're only seeing somebody, you know, from the shoulders up, um, although I did have a colleague who told me she knew I was pregnant because my the bridge of my nose got wider. <laughs> so like there are those people too. <laughs> um, but you know, so so in some cases they're finding that, and I'm sure it adds to the anxiety too of of how is this all going to work to to delay some of those conversations. Um, so that's that's one trend. Um, you know, the other thing that I, I have found to be true with a lot of the the coaching clients. Sorry, my dog is sorry, my dog is shaking. I'll start over. <laughs> The other thing that I have found true to be with some of my coaching clients is that, you know, they are perhaps nervous to return to work and to, you know, establish themselves as back and to sort of like help people understand the time period they were away and now they're back without realizing that actually a number of their colleagues who were not on a family leave are experiencing the same thing. You know, if people are being asked to return to work or to some sort of hybrid situation, you know, physically that actually in many ways, their colleagues are facing that same sort of amorphous feeling of like, I've seen you, but I haven't seen you, but who was around. And you can use that to your advantage in a way, you know, to, you don't feel quite so isolated. That's one thing. Um, And then, you know, business development is a perpetual challenge to fit in. Um, You know, it seems to be particularly true, true for women um, and for mothers. And one thing that I have advised a lot of new moms, and it it sounds, it's kind of classic advice, like make friends with the women in your, like in your breastfeeding support group. But what's changed over the pandemic is that I think with, um, with what's happened to the economy, with what's happened to the job force, making the headlines that it has, we've opened up a lot more conversations that used to be somewhat taboo around salary, around benefits, around how many weeks do you get? And I really encourage all new parents, not just new moms, but parents to think of other parents with paid work and unpaid work as your colleagues. You may be in completely different fields or you may live in different cities, but if you have the thing in common of having this small child you're caring for while also doing paid work. It's absolutely fair game to ask about what people are receiving in terms of salary, benefits, coverage. How was your maternity leave potentially prorated if you were paid for part of it? How did it work in that state versus this state? Because what we do very quickly in our own work environments is we create this sort of bubble of what's normal, like what's okay to talk about, what's not, what sort of, you know, what the rights are of employees at this organization. And as soon as you hear that someone at a different organization 
in the same field or someone at the same level, but in a different field that they have access to different things than you, it just pops that bubble of normal. We should all be in a normal here nationally. And I would say even globally that supports the rights of parents and caregivers to be able to earn a paycheck while also caring for their families. And so I really think it's so cool that now we can talk to our friends about our careers in a way that perhaps we couldn't before. Um, and everybody's a colleague and that's okay. Absolutely. I, you know, we talk about this with employees when we, when we tell them the, their company asking you to keep your salary quiet only benefits them. And it's absolutely the same thing with paid leave with the, Again, the written and unwritten policies, um, the benefits that you're offered. How is your how is your boss helping to accommodate your schedule? That is something that is very frequently left um, to the individual manager to decide. Um, so there are lots and lots of things just even outside of what might be considered standard company policies or benefits um, that still have a massive impact on your experience and your ability to to do your job. I love yeah. what you're saying about people have to have to share it. Yeah. The number one thing I hear from people who are denied requests and negotiations is that someone has said to them, yes, but if I do it for you, I'm going to have to do it for everyone. Yes. And, you know, I understand where that comes from because of course, you know, people are worried about, you know, um, accusations of prejudice and of discrimination. You know, I gave this to her and I didn't give it to him. So what does that say about, you know, my feelings about men, let's say, um, when in fact, Going into any negotiation as a parent who is trying to find a way of working that will let them keep working, it's so important to remember that that what you're asking for is not just for you in your personal life, but you're asking for essentially everyone. And so when they say to you, you know, I'd have to do it for everyone. Well, the answer to that is like, that's probably what's needed to make progress here and for us to stay competitive. And I'm really putting myself out there to be a guinea pig and asking for it for everybody who may not have whatever kind of privilege is letting me ask right now. So I am putting myself out there to, you know, be someone who can pilot this for us and can, can, you know, check back in with you to see what's working, what's not working and make it a success for our whole company. I love that. That is a script we need to be writing down for people that they can use. Um, This is directly related I know, to this conversation around the great resignation right now as well, right? These are the kinds of things when we talk about retention or we talk about hiring challenges, those are directly related to these kinds of issues. What else do you want managers, um, you know, leaders to know and to think about when it comes to supporting working parents? Childcare. I mean, that's yes. the... That is just number number one on everyone's minds is, you know, so we know that there are, I think the statistic I last read was 82% of the existing childcare spots available in our country before the pandemic are available now. Simultaneously, 50% of America is in what is classified by the government as a childcare um, desert which means that it's, you know, you'd have to drive a certain number of miles or that childcare is so out of bounds, expensive compared to what the um, average income is 
that it's inaccessible. And that is particularly true for people of color, particularly for Native Americans, it's been studied. So we were already coming into the pandemic with not enough childcare, not enough quality childcare, and not affordable childcare and childcare workers who are disproportionately marged from marginalized communities themselves and dramatically underpaid for the value of the work that they're doing. So it was a big old hot mess before the pandemic even happened. And then what of course has happened is that childcare did not really get a bailout. Um, it, there was some money um, in the American Rescue Plan that was that was given to help um, help childcare facilities, but it was not nearly, not nearly enough. And so now we're left with, you know, I've had three clients in the last two weeks tell me the day before they were supposed to go back to their paid work that two of them had nannies who quit on their first day um, because they got a better offer someplace else, which uh, good for the nanny, go get paid, you know? Um, and the third had a daycare spot that she had secured back in February. Um, when we're talking right now in December. So when she was early pregnant, um, that disappeared. The center was open, but they didn't have enough staff to be able to have a classroom available for her baby. So it's important for managers and HR to really understand that if the childcare industry's recovery is going to be so much more delayed than every other industry, that those other industries don't just get to keep on recovering because it's going to disproportionately impact anyone with a caregiving obligation who's working in those organizations. Yes. So, you know, there's a, it's a really wonderful opportunity to invest in childcare supports. You know, um, the very best thing any company can do is have backup childcare available. And I won't even, I used to say, and, or now, and offer a childcare stipend because that gives people the most agency for different family structures, different family locations. Maybe you want to spend it on, you know, paying a nanny an extra $4 an hour because that's suddenly what it costs and you didn't budget for it a year ago. Um, or maybe you want to spend, you know, the stipend on um, having, you know, grandma take a leave from her work for a month and come and stay with you. And it's the airline ticket and it's helping her forego her pay for a month. But this all is leading to where I hope our conversation is going. Yes, 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 yes. Paid family and medical leave. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. I could not agree more. And I want, I want HR and business owners and leadership to listen to this message. There will be no economic recovery without childcare support, period. There just will not. Um, and so I love what you're talking about. It can be very simple. And look, if you're a small business um, that thinks that you can't afford it, then start with something small. Start with a small stipend. Um, being able to offer those kinds of benefits. The logistics of offering those benefits are very, very easy, I can tell you. Um, and again, offer as much as you possibly can. I'll give you, I'll give you a really concrete example. So $100 a week um, would help someone in where I live in New York City be able to have their caregiver take an Uber to work instead of traveling on public transportation if, for instance, they've got a newborn they're taking care of and they don't want someone exposed. That's where that $100 would go. Yes. That, that parent is going to feel way more than $100 worth better about staying in that job. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you. So this is a conversation. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about paid leave. Um, and where are we now? 
<laughs> and <laughs> what can people do, um, individuals do to advocate for the paid leave, which is so critical? So I'm really fortunate to have access to people who have been doing this policy work for decades now, who are experts, experts. So um, I have formed with a number of co-founders who are all amazing women. They invited me to join it. I was not like the person who had this idea. Um, an organization that we are naming the Chamber of Mothers, which is think of the Chamber of Com Commerce, think of AARP. It's essentially a lobbying organization whose entire mission is to focus America's attention on the rights of mothers issue by issue. And the first issue that we are just diving into from a communications perspective and helping really spread the word is paid family and medical leave, which was always meant to be part of the Build Back Better Act. Um, I was, you know, independent of this, this chamber. I was invited to be on Zooms with um, the White House as they were trying to help people understand what was in it back in May. And the plan is not perfect. Um, even then it wasn't perfect, but it was, it was pretty robust, super inclusive, meant to offer 12 weeks of paid leave to um, anyone who had a need to take care of themselves medically or a member of their family, or even someone who they considered chosen family, like pretty awesome. That was all in the bill, in the bill, in the bill. It fell out, it fell down to four weeks from 12 weeks um, mid-fall, which was devastating. And there was a big social media campaign around, you know, what happens at four weeks, because if you have given birth, um, you are probably still bleeding. So the hashtag that we came up with was um was uh built it, built, it was actually Aaron Ehrenberg, I should give credit to at Totem, um, who came up with the, with the hashtag we can't build back bleeding, um, which is what they were essentially asking us to do. And then maybe a week or two after that. Um, paid family medical leave fell out of the bill completely, zero weeks. And we thought, oh, no, 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 let's get those four weeks back yeah. in. So we we formed this chamber. We did a lot of, um, of, of work supporting existing organizations like Paid Leave for the United States and um, Paid Leave for All, which is a big umbrella organization, um, Moms Rising. And these places have been just doing advocacy and lobbying work for years and are amazing at it. And ultimately, Nancy Pelosi basically couldn't go to sleep one night and she came in the next day and she put four weeks back in the bill before it went to the House. She didn't necessarily have a path forward for how she was going to get the votes she needed from the Senate to be able to get it all the way to the finish line. That's where we are right now. We know that we have votes for it for, from essentially every senator in the country, except for Joe Manchin in West Virginia. So we are trying really hard right now to ask people to lobby their senators in their own states, knowing that they're supportive, but offering them the stories, the personal experience, the relevancy that they need to be able to communicate effectively with Senator Schumer, Chuck Schumer, who is the Senate Majority Leader, who will ultimately be the person who is right now doing what, and this is like, all this language is new to me. Like, I'm not a policy person, but I'm like learning pretty quickly that people who aren't policy people can actually like have impact and voice. Absolutely. Okay, so Senator Schumer is currently quote unquote, scrubbing the bill to get it to a point where his goal is to get it passed um, uh, into law, the whole bill before the new year, really before Christmas, but before the new year. And so he is scrubbing it to get it to a point where the, he knows he can get all of the Democratic senators votes that he needs. There are, by the way, like zero Republican senators who will vote for it. So let's not just blame Joe Manchin. Um, to get it through and pass so that it can be a success. Um, the number one thing that is most likely to get cut is paid family and medical leave. 
And the holdup there is actually not partisan at all. We know that 73% of Americans support paid family and medical leave. We know that in Virginia, 80, I mean, West Virginia, 80% of, of Joe Manchin's constituents believe in paid medical leave and think it should be law. Um, we don't have any paid leave, as you, as you know, um, here in America, which makes us a real outlier particularly if we're looking at a you know global economic recovery where we don't have this essential tool to be able to build back. Um, and so any amount of leave that could be made into law will um, normalize the idea that paid leave is even a human right, which everywhere else in, in the world, in the industrialized world is, is just a matter of truth and is not in the United States. So we know that 25% of American new moms um, take 10 days or less of leave because they can't afford to take more. This four weeks, while paltry, while you know, pennies in a tip jar, would be life-saving for that population. No question. Yeah. Sorry, can we just yeah. can we just Go. pause Go. on that Go. for a moment? Yeah. <laughs> Ten days. Yeah. Yeah. I that's a shocking, like mind-blowing figure. Yeah. I talk to women all the time who are back at work the next day. And this is, this is both women who work for themselves um, or, or who are, you know, the primary, primary breadwinner or are solo parenting. Um, and it is also hourly wage workers who cannot yep. go without pay. They're doing it because they have no choice. Yeah. And so what we're left with is the states have handled it, you know, state by state. Um, we know that so state nine states have passed paid paid fam some form of paid family leave, um, but they haven't all enacted it yet. Like I've been talking about this for months, thinking that Oregon had paid family leave. Well, guess what? Because of COVID, they pushed it off until at least September 2023 was the most recent date I heard. So like if you're <sighs> pandemic parenting right now, with the baby like you aren't getting it in Oregon. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, of course, the private sector has stepped up immeasurably and it makes a ton of headlines for it. And like fantastic go private sector. You know, we just heard yesterday that Pinterest just updated its, um, its plans to now have 20 weeks for everyone to have, um, 12 weeks of NICU leave for premature or sick babies. I mean, it's phenomenal, but it shouldn't have to be on the private sector. Like they should right. do it, but it should be an arms race to like have this basic level of leave that is offered to all human beings for elder care, for spousal care, to go into rehab. If you have an addiction, like all of these things, right? And then the states and the private sector should be able to improve upon it to draw the most attractive employees. And until we have that, what we have is a K-shaped economic recovery of like the top leg of the K, people who had access are gonna keep moving up. And the bottom leg of the K, the people who didn't have access are gonna keep moving down. And those two endpoints of those two legs get further and further and further apart. And so the more educated you are, the more, you know, you work in a field that is economically viable and doing well right now, like you might have some of the support you need, but if you aren't and you don't, you won't. And that is a tragedy. No question, no question. So I wanna go back and reiterate again, what are some of the things that individuals can do? You mentioned, you know, sending um, personal stories to Senator Chuck Schumer. We'll include some of the um, links in the show notes so that people know exactly where to do that. Um, what else are things that individuals can do if they're ready to go like do battle on behalf of paid leave? What can they do? So start in your own state by getting in touch with your senators and either thanking them or pushing them to, to do more and better. 
Um, talk to the people in your life who don't understand what paid family and medical leave is, who think it's a niche issue and think it's just for like brand new moms with babies, which there's no just in that sentence, but it is actually for everyone who will eventually get old and need care, right? Like yep. it's, there's, there's nobody who can't benefit from, from paid family and medical leave. So do that too. What else can you do? You know, talk to your company about why, if you happen to already have a really pretty robust policy, why they should be shouting that from the rooftops and why they should use their corporate influence to, again, get in touch with senators, get in touch with Senator Schumer to say, this is vitally important to our economy And really, really you and everyone around you who you work with understand the economic case for why paid family and medical leave is essential to economic recovery. It would increase jobs. It would increase our national GDP. It would get women back into the workforce who have been out. Oh, here's a great statistic. 37% of people who are voluntarily, sort of voluntarily out of work right now, like who could go back to work, but are not you know, this is the great, um, wait, what did you call it? I was the great resignation, the great resignation, all those people, 37% of those people say that if they had access to paid family leave, they would come back into the workforce. And I tried to explain that to my dad who was like, well, so you're saying they'd come back and then they wouldn't work. And I'm like, no, no. What I'm saying is they would come back because they would be able to work knowing that if their kid's daycare had to shut down for 10 days, they could take that time and then return to the work again. Yes. Yes. Nearly 40%. Yeah. Of people out of work. Yeah. This is is why, honestly, I really don't want to hear managers complaining about not being able to hire because there are so many of these things that are so fundamental. Um, I'm tired of seeing the signs, you know, on um, establishments saying, oh, you know, our lobby is closed because we can't hire, can't find enough people to work or what have you. Like there's just no excuse anymore. These are the fundamental things that will make a massive difference. Pay them better, pay them yes. a livable wage so that they can pay for childcare or elder care to take care of the people they love. Yes. I love that. I love and that. And if you can't pay them, then you don't have a viable business. Right. Yes. Exactly. You know? like I will tell you really frankly. So I'm a business of one person. I staff up, you know, when I need to, I will hire 1099 employees to work on certain projects. I don't hire them unless I know that it is a big enough project that I can pay them a good hourly wage. Yep. Yep. And if you can't, then that project's not happening. It's not a project that's worth my staffing up for either. I should, you know, figure it out myself or adjust the scope of work. So it's less work. Um, or I should ask for more money and pay people to help me. It is not a viable business. If you can't pay people a living wage, it's just not. Yep. So for managers, HR people, we want, first and foremost, we want you to dive into your own company's policies and understand deeply what you offer. And if you're not already offering paid leave, then you need to start right now. What else do you recommend? There's one more thing, you know, particularly for, for HR professionals. So often HR professionals are my way in to the clients, organizations that I work with. And they're awesome people. Like I relate to the work that that you're doing and I love it. I find so often they don't actually have access to the best benefits that are available 
at their organizations. Very often, HR is thought of as staff, and it's a different um, it's a different benefits bucket of stuff that that you can have offered to you than say like at law firms. Very often, there's like you know one some of the, the many of the law firms that I work with are do much better than this. But the old model was you would have you know one level of benefits available for the paralegals and HR and staff, even if they were high ranking staff, and another. Um, kind of benefits available for attorneys. Yep. And we can't have that two-tier system anymore. And you see it, you yep. know, at places like Amazon, which is, you know, obviously has a whole bunch of challenges in terms of HR, but the one thing that they have done right, although I don't think that they they would tell you that they've not implemented it fully as well as they could or should, um, is that they have the same benefits around family leave available to their hourly wage workers as they do to their corporate employees. And that yep. is the next yep. way. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is where I still see it the most um, is where you have a separate tier of perks really for executive level um, leadership and, you know, that is nowhere near um, accessible to your hourly workers within the organization. Um, so yes, that's, it's still happening, um, you know, two tiered or even multiple tiered system. Um, and it's not that you can't offer other benefits, but understand that quite frankly, the people who need them the most and who will continue to sustain your business are those hourly workers. Absolutely. So this has been absolutely incredible. Um, I could talk for hours with you about all of this stuff. Um, is there anything else that you want to leave um, the audience, another, any thought that you want to leave the audience with um, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, at least for now? <laughs> Most of all, just the drumbeat of the idea that one person really can make a difference, that you shouldn't have to fix the problem that you're in. But if you have one ounce of energy to do it, to speak up, to be a tiny bit more transparent than is comfortable for you, please do. Because there are a lot of people who don't have the ability to do that, who are counting on you. And you should feel emboldened knowing that this is not just for you in your personal life, but is really for, for workers around you who don't have the same privilege or access. Um, and also, you know, anybody who's listening, please um, join us at the Chamber of Mothers, chamberofmothers.com. Um, it's no obligation. It's certainly no financial obligation, but sign up, let us know if you want to be a part of a particular sub chamber, you know, to advocate for, for certain issues, um, with whatever skills and talent and time you may, may have now or later join us. We're looking for 1 million, um, moms or mom supporting people to eventually join. And, uh, if you have any questions um, that are fifth trimester related or, you know, about negotiating around flexibility, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. I try to respond to all direct messages. Um, I'm just the fifth trimester is all, all spelled out is, is my handle there on Twitter, which by the way, is the most effective way to reach lawmakers because their digital directors are responsible for actually combing through and seeing when they're tagged, when they're, you know, if there's a hashtag that's trending that has anything to do with a political issue, like they report that to them daily. So Twitter, 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 Twitter. I am um, Lauren S. Brody. The S is for Smith. Um, and then my website, of course, for any kind of corporate work, or you can DM me through um, through Instagram for, for corporate as well. If you want to introduce me to somebody at an employee resource group or somebody in HR at your organization um, is just the fifth trimester.com. 
Beautiful. Well, we will be sure to leave um, links to all of um, what you just described. We'll make sure then provide some links for where people can find you um, online. Um, I can't thank you enough for this conversation and for all the advocacy you're doing. I will say I am already a member of the Chamber of Mothers um, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Everybody needs to go join um, and again, be a part of this advocacy work. It is so critical and we will be able to we will be able to see change, um, but it will take all of us. Um, and when you're speaking for yourself, you are speaking for all of those who come before you and after you. So Lauren, thank you so much. Um, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate you're doing this work and putting your so much of your time and energy and passion and skills into it. Problem Performers is a production of HR Uprise Media part of an organization built around a single question. What if you could have HR that works for you rather than your boss? Well, now you can with your own HR Uprise coach. Get affordable, confidential advice from an experienced HR pro who works only for you. Learn more at hruprise.com. And hey, employers, we've got you covered too. HR Uprise provides independent investigations, harassment prevention training, private employee coaching, and much more. Email us at hello at hruprice.com or visit our page at hruprice.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.